following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Hopelessness is the root of despair. Many people today are in despair. In despair because of painful, chronic um, diseases that cannot be healed. In despair because of uh, marriages that are miserable or children who have departed from the faith. In despair because of grief or even because of guilt. But the root cause of despair in every one of these situations is a lack of hope. Hopelessness is the mother of despair. And Christians can also lose hope and fall into despair. We can take our eyes off of the holy, loving, triune God, off of Christ our Savior. And we begin, like Peter, to look at the waves around us and we begin to sink. And we sink in despair because we've lost hope. We become hopeless. Perhaps sometime that's happened to some of you. Perhaps even some of you sit here today and you're in despair because uh, you have no hope in your life. And many of us know others who are in this situation, other Christians in this situation. And we'll be called on to come alongside them. We might be called on by God ourselves to fall into situations in which we could despair. So, as we think this morning about despair that grows out of hopelessness, we look to Job as the portrait of a despairing believer. Now, we've seen Job as the portrait of a godly man in chapter 1, the portrait of a useful man in chapter 1. But now we meet Job, who is the despairing man. He is the believer who has lost hope and despairs and laments. Now remember that all scripture is given for our profit. And here we shall find both instruction, admonition for ourselves, but also comfort as we consider Job's speech and prayer. In chapter 6, Job began to answer the accusations of Eliphaz, the elder spokesman of his enemies, who basically has accused Job of gross hypocrisy, has sought to marshal evidence against Job, and then uh, calls Job to repentance and, and very glibly promises him full restoration if he'll but repent. Of course, that's the problem. Job had no glaring sins of hypocrisy uh, of which to repent. What's going on in his life? His despair doesn't come simply out of a loss of family and, and uh, friends and servants and property and, yes, his own children, his, his own illness. No, uh, the great cause right now of Job's despair is a hopelessness he's fallen into because he had only known God as friend. And now God seems to be his enemy. You see, Job will not yet escape this theology of his friends, that if you suffer the way Job suffers, then you must be a wicked man. But Job in his conscience knows he's not a wicked man. Now he confesses sin. We'll see that next week in the second part of this chapter. But he's not a wicked man. He's known God's smile. Why now has God turned against him? Job's great problem is that God was his friend, apparently has become his enemy. 
And he can't begin to, to fathom that. So what I want you to see here as we look at this uh, speech and, and prayer is that a perplexed uh, a Christian, uh, a believer, may, may despair. A despairing believer has lost all hope and longs for death as he withers under divine scrutiny. A despairing believer has lost all hope and longs for death as he withers under divine scrutiny. We'll look at three things about this despairing, perplexed believer. He has uh, he's lost all hope. He longs mightily for death. And he languishes under divine scrutiny. Loss of hope. Longing for death. Languishing under divine scrutiny. Well, uh, verses 1 through 6 is something of a soliloquy that Job is but speaking now out of his heart. And here he expresses this uh, loss of hope. Is not man forced to labor on earth? Are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave who pants for the shade and a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages? So am I allotted months of vanity. And nights of trouble are appointed me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I'm continually tossing until dawn. My flesh is covered with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. In the first two verses, Job compares the life of of mortal men. That's the the word he uses here, uh, a man in his frailty, man in all of his mortality. He compares the life of a mortal man to that of uh, a soldier enlisted into hard service or a hireling or a slave who works in the field of a man. He says that the times are appointed. Times of life are appointed just as the times of the daily labor and hard service is appointed. Grievous times that must be endured, and so that is life. But he says that as the military man, which is what in our New American Standard, forced to labor simply means fulfilling a military requirement, or the hired man or the slave labors, notice in verse 2, that he does so with hope for rest and reward. Respite and reward. As a slave who pants for the shade, as a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. So even as the the hireling or or the soldier um, goes about the labor of the day, he can anticipate rest. Shade might simply mean a temporary rest under a tree, but more than likely, Job is talking here about the rest of night. When one can uh, turn aside from his labor and get some respite, some rest and, and some refreshment. So that even though it's a hard lot that God has appointed to so many in life, there's a hope of rest. And then there's the hope of reward. So he says in the second part of verse 3, a hired man who eagerly waits for his wages. In the old culture, a man was paid the end of the day. And as he labored, he could think about the, the reward that he would get for his labor as he entered into Uh, his rest. And so though life was hard and service was often very difficult for mortal man, uh, there's a promise of rest. There is a promise of respite, not just daily, but in life itself, Uh, resting times, uh, reward times from the hand of the Almighty. But notice in verse 3 how Job compares himself 
uh, to uh, the daily laborer or the man in military service. So, so, there's the contrast. So, a comparison, am I allotted a day? No. I am allotted months of vanity and nights of trouble are appointed me. He compares his life not to the day laborer, not to a day that will end in rest, but he compares his life to months of uselessness, months of destruction, because that's all that lies before him as far as he can see, and no rest will come. He said nights, nights of respite, well, they're trouble for me, appointed me. And he tells why. Verse 4, when I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night continues. I'm continually tossing until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt. My skin hardens and runs. There's rest in life for the normal man. But Job says there's no rest for him. There's not even a nightly respite. Is he in bed? He tosses and turns with insomnia. A sleeplessness is over him, and it is aggravated by the intense pain of, of, his, of his suffering. The flesh clothed with worms and crust of dirt, his skin hardens, and his skin runs. Maybe you boys and girls have found yourselves at night in bed with a high fever, and, and you just can't sleep, and the bed just never gets comfortable. And most of us at one time or another probably have experienced insomnia. We simply cannot sleep. And then the imagination runs wild. And every imaginable problem prays itself before us. And the night gets worse and worse. And we hear the clock ticking. We hear the hour striking hour after hour after hour. Job said that uh, that was his life. And not just a night. This was, this was the picture of his life, that there was no respite for him. He indeed was at wit's end, and there was no light for him in the end of the tunnel. He says there's no reward. That, I think, is the reference to uh, the weaver's shuttle. Verse 6, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and come to an end without hope. That shuttle, back and forth, back and forth, just stringing one yarn through another, after another, after another. An endless task. It was his life, an endless task with, with no reward. The hard man, the military man, would get his wages. He would get his reward. But Job said for him, he was past all that. All had been taken away from him. And so what is his conclusion in the end of verse 6? My days have come to an end without hope. You see, Job lost hope. He lost all sight now of of the glorious God who had, had been his friend. All hope. Eliphaz glibly promised hope. He said, if you'll but repent, God's going to restore you to glorious days such as you've never known before. But Job knew that was not possible because he could not repent of that which he'd not done. And yet here he was. His days were like filled with vanity. No reward, no hope for Job. I hope that you've not found yourself in that situation. Perhaps some of you have in the past. I trust no one today is in that situation. But we all know to some degree hopelessness. We know the depression or despair that can come from that. 
And you see that Job's been given here to help you understand exactly what's going on in your soul, in your heart. But this lack of hope then leads to a longing for death. And what Job does in uh, verses 7 through uh, 11 is defend his intemperate language as he further expresses or demands the right to die. Now, in the first half here, verses 7 and 10, he sets out before us um, really the, the brevity of life and the finality of death. He begins with the brevity of life. You know, he's praying, you understand that here. So it was a soliloquy, but now he begins to look to the Lord God, and he is praying, and he asks God, remember that my life is but breath, and the word breath is wind. It's, it's very similar to what the psalmist will uh, pray in Psalm 78, 38, and 39. But he, God, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, often restrained his anger, did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. That's the figure now that Job calls upon God. He says, Lord, remember that you've appointed this brevity of life. You have appointed to be but like a wind that is here in one second. That particular wind is, is far, far gone. He further speaks of the brevity of life with this play on words in the end of verse 7 and verse 8. My eye will not see good again. So regardless of what Eliphaz says, his life is over. It's like wind. He knows that he is not going to see good again. Hopelessness. He says about his friends, the eye of him who sees me will behold me no longer. That just like this, I'll be gone. And then he addresses God. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. The eyes of God, the, the sovereign control of God. Amos uses this language for God coming in judgment. Uh, the eyes of God coming in judgment. And perhaps that's exactly what Job has in mind now, that he is soon to perish under the judging eye of God, and life is soon going to be over. And then in verses 9 and 10, having spoken of the brevity of life, he speaks of the finality of death, uses three figures, one of the more remarkable sections in all the Old Testament describing death. The first is a cloud. When a cloud vanishes, it's gone. Again, children, you've gotten up in the morning, you look outside, and it was a cloudy day, and you go back an hour later, and it was a bright, sunny day. What happened? Well, the sun burned the clouds away. Clouds are never here to stay. And he said, that's life. And when the cloud is gone, it's over. And when life is finished, it's over. And then he uses the figure of Sheol. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up, the finality of death. There's no coming back from the grave. Buried is the end of it for all. Now Job's not talking here about annihilation. And Job is not denying a belief in the future life, as we shall see later in the book. But he's simply speaking about the reality of present life. The Psalms often express this thought, as even in Psalm 30. There's no praise for God uh, from the grave, Psalm 88. And it simply means that this life of service here will be absolutely finished. Uh, it's final and there's no restoration. 
And then perhaps the most poignant figure is in verse 10. The one who dies will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. A few years ago, my wife and I visited uh, Winston Churchill's estate, Chartwell. And it, it was arranged as if he was alive. And there was actually a cigar in the ashtray. Of course, it wouldn't have been there if he was alive. It had been in his mouth. But anyway, but you can just imagine he was out in the garden or perhaps down in his studio painting, and he would soon be back. But just see, he didn't come back to his place. He didn't come back to the empty chair. How wonderfully that's described in the empty chair song in Le Mis. Here's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Empty chairs and empty tables. Now my friends are dead and gone. That's the finality of death. We don't come back and the, our place knows us no longer. Well, in a sense, Job, in these first few verses, is, is laying the foundation now for what he's going to say in verse 11, which actually is quite grievous. He's praying. He recognizes that there is faith at work here. He does not curse God. He does not deny God. But now he demands of God. He demands to be God. Therefore, verse 11, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He's basically saying, I have a right to speak the way I've spoken. I have a right because of the brevity and finality of life and death uh, to demand that I die now. So he knows no restraint. The anguish of his spirit breaks forth like a bottle under pressure. And he complains out of the bitterness of his soul. For hopelessness has given rise not just to a longing for death, but hopelessness has given rise to a venting of himself. As a hopeless man who now is in deep despair, dark depression. Now understand that Job is not wrong. He's not wrong to pray for death, as I pointed out before. But he must pray for death as our Savior prayed in the garden. Nevertheless, let thy will be done, not mine. But Job prayed with no submissiveness here. Job dictated to God. It's time for it to be finished. You know that life is breath. There's no good that awaits me. Death is final. Take me now. And that's where he greatly erred. And he will, under God's tutelage in chapter 40, repent of such language. And it warns us to be very careful, as we'll see later, of how we set our arguments out before God. So loss of hope leads to this intense, imbalanced longing for death. Now, again, Job submitted. He didn't take his own life. He recognized only God had that prerogative. But we also know that despair is what often drives even Christians to commit suicide. Life is all bleak and dark, and everything is hopeless, and they see no one way out, and then Satan whispers in their ear, as you can see that graphic description in Pilgrim's Progress, how much better off their family would be if they were gone. And so they put the gun to their head and killed themselves out of hopeless despair, out of an intense, unbridled demand for death, usurping the authority of God. But a despairing believer can do that. 
we must always seek the grace of God in all of our trials and afflictions. Perhaps you've been there yourself. Satan very easily whispers into the ear, there's a gun there in the drawer. You know, take it all. Just finish it. Why put up with this? Why? Why endure it? That's that, that intense longing for death that is unbridled and unbiblical. But then we see that uh, his final complaint is a languishing under divine scrutiny. Now he gets to the heart of the issue. What in the world is God doing in his life? Verses 12 to 16. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams, terrify me with visions, so that my soul would choose suffocation rather than my pains. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. Verse 12, he complains about this divine scrutiny. He compares himself to the sea or, or a sea monster. That God does watch over. You know, we, that's, the Bible teaches us. He set a boundary for the sea. We know that two inches of water can wipe a truck off a bridge. And if God had not put this boundary of sand around the sea, it would inundate us. It would flood us. But Job says, why treat me as if I'm the sea? Why guard over me as if I'm some sea monster, such as God will describe in chapter 41, the Leviathan, that only God can control? Why me? Why this pressure on me? I understand it in the physical realm, but why in the world is God putting this kind of pressure on me? Why am I in the pressure cooker? Why am I in the midst of this awful affliction? He recognizes God's sovereignty, you see. He says, if I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. In the midst of insomnia, he says, when he did find some sleep, what happened? He had nightmares. You boys and girls have had nightmares. You wake up crying and, and shouting for, for daddy or for, or for mama. He had nightmares. He had these visions were hallucinations coming probably from his fever. But he recognized that God is the one who controls these things as well. Why was God taking away any hope of rest? Out of insomnia, into sleep, sleep filled with nightmares and, and hallucinations so that he is indeed terrified. He comes to the conclusion that his soul would rather die by strangulation than go through this any longer. There are few deaths probably worse than dying by strangulation. It's slow. It's painful. But he said he'd prefer that over the life that he now had under this divine pressure. In fact, he says he prefers death rather than pains. And the word pains is bones. He said, I'm a skeleton. I'm a bag of bones. Death is preferable over any continuation in this estate where I find myself. He expresses his hatred then of his existence. The word translated waste in verse 16 is I loathe or I hate. 
He hated his existence. He says, I'm not going to live forever. He basically tells God, back off, leave me alone. For my days are but a breath. You know, he uses these different words here. Breath in verse 7 is wind. And then when he speaks of the, um, the, the brevity of uh, our... Uh, he speaks of vanity as destruction. The, the breath in verse 7 is, uh, is wind. And then he speaks of here, um, the breath that we exhale. So again, out in a cold morning and you exhale and there's a bit of a little cloud for two seconds. It's gone. Leave me alone for my days are but a breath. Shorter now than two seconds. So we've got a portrait of a despairing believer. A despairing believer we've seen has lost all hope and longs for death as he withers under divine scrutiny. So as, as we think about these verses, we probably are asking the question, well, you know, what is this for me? Well, boys and girls, is a lesson for you. That is because you think that you're going to live forever. Even to be as old as I am. When I was in Brazil and I went in to help uh, with one of the children's classes, um, uh, so they asked me how old I was. And I said, well, guess. One little girl says, 100. And one said, 98. And that's what I look like to some of you. But you know, life's but a breath. It's like wind. It's like a cloud in the sky that's going to uh, quickly vanish. And it's very good, not just for adults, but for children, to think about the shortness of life so that you live with your hearts regulated before God, resting in Christ, trusting in God, not thinking you've got a future life that you can do these things in and live the way you want to now. But it's profitable for all of us to meditate on death. Solomon teaches it's better to go to a funeral than a birthday party because it sets before us the brevity of life and the finality of death. But particularly with respect to Job's expressions here, I would bring three things to your attention. In the first place, the Spirit does teach us here how to pray in terms of how to argue with God. God wants us to learn to enforce our petitions. And you see how Joe, he does it with an analogy from life. He says, he says my life is worse off than the life of a day laborer or, 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 or a military man. And uh, Lord, have mercy on me. He argues from the brevity of life, and he asks God to remember. He argues from the finality of death, and he sets his petitions before the Lord with these arguments. And it's very important that you gather the promises of Scripture and the revelation of God's nature. And as you pray, that you turn these things into arguments to enforce the, the pleas and petitions that you're bringing to God. Learn to pray. As Job prayed, but then you must learn with balance. There's the warning. That is, Job went beyond arguing with God to dictating to God, didn't he? 
He demanded. He defended his intemperate, impetuous language. He demanded death immediately. He, uh, he'd forgotten of God's leading in his life and simply was going to dictate to God what to do. And, and we can find ourselves in that same situation. And you begin to dictate to God out of your misery rather than submit. Let your will be done, but give me grace. As Paul learned when he prayed three times that this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, would be removed. And God said, I'm not going to do it. But my grace is sufficient. And that was sufficient for Paul. And when you pray, and the Lord leaves you in that circumstance, you don't dictate, you don't take things into your own hands, but then you trust that God will give you the grace which he's promised to endure anything that he brings into your life. But the third, I think, most important lesson that we get from Job's soliloquy and prayer is the importance of hope. The importance of hope. You see, Job lost hope. Loss of hope leads to despair. And that's what leads to depression. That's what leads to dark and, and gloomy lives. Um, a loss of hope. But it's very important for a Christian to understand the hope of God that belongs to us. One of the things that Jay Adams would emphasize time and again is you always begin counseling with hope. If you're counseling a Christian, you're not allowed to come to the point and say, well, that's just where I am, or that's just who I am, or that's just who she is. You see, that is blasphemy. If we believe in the God of hope, the God who's not finished with us yet, or with anyone else that belongs to him, then we persist in a hope that's based upon the sure and certain promises of the gospel. You must fortify yourself with hope when you find yourself in this awful situations from which there seems to be no escape. Unrelenting pain for which there is no remission. Dark grief and sorrow. Even depression. You must never lose sight of the fact that God has said for you in Christ there's hope. Let me give you two arguments to enforce that. In the first place, and they're both founded in Christ Jesus, we hope because God gave his only begotten son to be our savior. God the Father gave his son that God might become our father. If God has loved you so much, he has given you his son. Doesn't Paul ask the question, how Will he not also with him freely give you all things, all that you stand in need of, all that he wisely knows you are in need of, he's going to give you. Our hope is in this eternal loving God who loved us so much that he would give us a son. But more so, as you look to Christ, I want you to understand that he is your hope. Uh, that's why we had the, the meditation and then uh, the, the reading from Colossians where Paul says that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Be because of union with the Lord Jesus Christ, when you were converted and born again, and the Spirit of Christ uh, indwells your soul, bringing Christ in all of his fullness to you, Christ with all that he has done, Christ with all that he is, now belongs to you. Christ who went through 
and, and it, awful suffering beyond anything that Job could endure. Job probably is the man, most likely the preeminent type of Christ and what he endured. But Christ endured all the physical and emotional pain and the rejection of the Father and the hell of the cross itself and ignominious death and burial. Nevertheless, he didn't lose hope, did he? Even in his dereliction, even when he's suffering the wrath of God, he prays, my God, my God. His faith did not waver. He drank fully the cup of God's wrath and he satisfied it that we might have hope. But it didn't stop there, is it? His life was not like a cloud that vanishes. He did come back from the grave. His place did recognize him. He now is enthroned in heaven on high, and you are in him, and he is in you, and Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Thus, in Jesus Christ is every single thing that you need. You need nothing beyond him. You need Christ. Christ is the basis of your hope. And so you look to Christ. You look to Christ in, in his ordinances. You look to Christ in your baptism. You look to Christ in the Lord's Supper. You look to Christ. You cling to Christ. Because Christ is in you the hope of glory. And thus you need not despair. Regardless of, of the physical or emotional pain. Don't despair. Christ is yours and you are his. He's been raised from the dead. He's conquered even death itself. So that's not final for us either. It's because of this that Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, which is to lose hope. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison, while we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporal, but things which are not seen are eternal. You look there. You look to Christ. So again, I would ask each one of you here today, are you in Christ? Or if you're not in Christ, then Christ is not in you, the hope of glory. And all that lies before you is hopelessness and despair because of your sin. Because of God's anger. And beyond that, in the hopeless despair of an eternal punishment of God in hell. But as you breathe now, as you yet are in this life, as you have not entered that final door of the existence of this life, then now is the time to look to God and to cry out to Christ for salvation. And know that He shall receive you as you come unto Him. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.